You're listening to Denver Orbit. Episode 37. From the 90s. Hello and welcome to Denver Orbit. Denver Orbit is an audio magazine that features voices, stories, and music from Colorado's creative community. I, of course, am Josh Madison. I'm the host of this here little program. So yes, it's been a month or so since our last episode, but the show is not dead. Not yet, anyway. By way of explanation, uh, here's the thing. For the last year, or longer, really... I've been working on a long-form audio documentary with friend of the show Shannon Geis and our former co-host Ryan Connell. This documentary is about the murder of a Denver talk radio host named Alan Berg. Alan Berg was gunned down in his driveway on a warm summer night in Denver in 1984. But he wasn't just gunned down by an angry listener or some random person. He was killed by a white supremacist organization called The Order. And they were working towards a much larger goal— the eventual overthrow of the United States government, and the implementation of a white ethnostate. And the actions and ideology of this group have had a ripple effect that goes from them to Ruby Ridge to Oklahoma City bombing, and can even be felt today. So, you know, I've been working on that. And also, I've joined a collective of Denver area radio producers making stories from and about Colorado. And that project is called Range and Slope, and that's going to start very soon as well. So that's what's been taking up my time as of late. And these projects are getting closer to completion, but as you can imagine, they are taking up some time. So that's my excuse for the kind of sporadic release schedule for this show lately. But there's a light at the end of this tunnel. You can expect a trailer for the Allen Berg project here in a couple of weeks. And the first episode of Range and Slope will be out soon too. So keep an eye out here for those things. Now, after saying all of that, we are always looking for people to collaborate with here on this little program. Writers, poets, musicians, librarians, museum folks, artists, or really anyone. If you've got an idea, any idea really, that you think would sound good in someone else's ears, drop me a line and tell me about it. You can email at denverorbit at gmail.com. Or of course, Denver Orbit is on all of those social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and yes, even Instagram. So you can find links to all of that stuff in the show description. Now, let's start this show for real. I started Denver Orbit almost two years ago now, and truthfully, I had no idea what kind of stuff I was going to get. And that's mostly because of ignorance on my part. For instance, Denver has a really robust literary scene that I was mostly unaware of. And today, I'm happy to bring you two really great writers from that scene, Brandy Hillman and Christopher Rosales. So let's start with Brandy. This is an excerpt from her novel, Burn Fortune, which is about 16-year-old June, a corn-detasseling flag twirler who lives in a small conservative town in the early 90s Midwest. I should tell you, I have a boyfriend and it's serious. 
I know it's serious because we try to move his stepmother Darlene out of the house, stack drawers filled with clothes in the backseat of my boyfriend's cavalier. It's serious because my boyfriend's dad comes home and finds us. You can beat the shit out of me, I don't care, I'm leaving, Darlene screams. I know it's serious because my boyfriend gave me precious moments, and they are. I should tell you everyone is afraid of my boyfriend's dad. When he's gone, we make fun of how he walks tippy-toed, but when he's around, it's different. My boyfriend's singing voice is so beautiful, I cry. He wants to hear me sing too, and I do. I should tell you I'm going to move away with my boyfriend. I've already bought Tupperware. Summer. We detassel corn for my boyfriend's dad, the JV wrestling coach. We walk through the fields, pulling tassels, getting cut and blistered and burnt for $5 an hour. How I learn what under the table means. My boyfriend sings to keep me going. He sings, never gonna let you down, my girl, Rick Astley. Songs about how we'll be together forever, how I belong to him. Namesake. Mother named me after June Carter Cash. Not her voice, Alley Cat Twang makes my eyes water, Mother says, but the song June wrote that Johnny recorded. What it should feel like, Mother says, falling in love. Her lips flatten into a line and she pauses before asking if Marcy's coming for dinner. Marcy versus the world. Marcy makes me join flag team. I practice routines with her in the parking lot sometimes just to see what she'll do. She throws her soda at passing cars, then flashes her bra to make the peace, she says. She almost hits Kent Burke's Camaro. He mouths the C word at her, smiles sweetly as he passes. Marcy shuts her eyes and twirls. Are you afraid I will fly away? Mother's trying not to show that she's afraid I will actually move away with my boyfriend. She brings things home after almost every shift at Walmart. An egg poacher, guest towels, a trash can small enough for the bathroom. Her discount plus sale prices equals too good to resist, she says, looking at the inventory in the trunk at the end of my bed. She counts what's there, what's not, remembers the lists in her head, how I know she loves me. The Culvert Marcy and I meet Jeremy outside Centennial Pool. He's a grade older, but should be too. We cross the street to Preservation Park and discover the culvert to the storm drain. The culvert is a round pipe a few feet across that leads to the storm drain's dank cement room. By dank cement room, I mean sewer. Marcy crawls in the culvert behind Jeremy on a dare and lets him feel her up under the new Benetton shirt her daddy brought her from Paris. Her daddy is a bigwig at Russell Tool and Manufacturing, but Marcy sucks her first two fingers in public. She twirls her hair so hard it falls out. Trick trillomania, her doctor says. Marcy tells people she has trick. I sit plucking grass by the entrance to the culvert with my knees tucked under my chin. Nobody's daddy but Marcy's is bringing clothes back from Europe. Town stores don't carry Benetton. They do, however, carry crop t-shirts with neon triangles that look like graffiti, and I want one. The shirts are $32. My folks aren't paying $32 for a t-shirt. 
That triangle would lie on me like a stiff, coated tablecloth, Marcy's Benetton stripes already bending nicely around the edges. I holler into the pipe that I'm leaving. A lesson. Reaching between the corn leaves, I pull my first tassel. It slides out with a pop, white like a green onion. I drop it to the ground, wet with dew. The little black insects that were clumped around the base of the tassel are smushed on my palm. Jeremy says they are spider mites, and spider mites, he says, crawl up your asshole and lay eggs. When the sea is calm. I have to pee in the field even though the tape from corporate office they play on the first day of the season says not to. Even though I'm afraid of spider mites in my asshole. Pulling up my shorts, I hear a rustle, a pounding, but when I stand, the field is empty and the tops of the rows are still. Flag team. There's a lot people don't know about twirling flags. I love practicing with the band in the summer, sweat, horns, and drums too loud to think, the best part. I like the marching, one, two, one, two, reassuring your body knowing what to do. One, two, one, two, three, four. Like the military, but with neon colors and flashy tricks, dazzle camouflage. My chest tightens when they're coming, the tricks. My heart like shrink wrap, but the flag lands in my hands. It always comes down. Like a sheet for a trampoline in the backyard, I give, hold tight, bounce back, snap two, one, two, one, two. Amber. My boyfriend buys me a ring. It is sterling silver stamped with 925 on the inside to show it's real. My boyfriend knows this because he brought it at the jewelry store in the mall, not the kiosk. There is a leaf on each side of the stone, a leaf with three balls beside it, grapes or something, the silver balls on Christmas cookies that break teeth. I don't know how he could afford the ring because he can't have a job during the school year, wrestling practice plus lifting and meets. Maybe he got the money from his grandmother. His grandmother is the type of person who would give you 50 bucks for your birthday after burning your favorite stuffed animal in a barrel out back. Once we stopped to visit his grandmother. She yelled at my boyfriend and told him, quote, not to bring any more whores around. This is a blood birthday money ring. The stone is amber, which I look up. It's tree sap that's hardened, but the best gross thing about amber is the insects, preserved inside it with twigs, seeds, and bubbles for like bazillions of years. My ring doesn't have an insect, no fly or beetle, but I can see how people would want something like that, still and whole and kept the same. My amber has black particles only, flakes. I like to think they're the fly's legs, the beetle's hindquarters, pieces of claw and tarsus, thorax and antennae, I like to think my beetle struggled. I like to think she worked her way out. Bluto. The man holding the clipboard on the edge of the field is my boyfriend's dad. In the rows, we talk about his booming voice, black hair, his tippy-toed walk for height. He's like that guy in the old Popeye cartoons. What's his name? I say. Brutus, Chet says. I don't think that's it. We wipe the sweat from our brows, sigh. Bluto, says Jeremy. It's Bluto, but sometimes they call him Brutus, copyright or something. Bluto's bloated chest, swollen arms. After this, we call my boyfriend's dad Bluto behind his back, even my boyfriend. 
Dairy Cream. The Dairy Cream is an ice cream stand built into the front porch of someone's house. It has two windows and two flavors of ice cream closer to custard, but who knows what to call it. An additional flavor is rotated in every few weeks and advertised in block letters in the parking lot with a flashing arrow. Marcy works there before detasseling season. She and her coworker Melanie come up with the most amazing concoctions. Chocolate blue raspberry slushies, banana peanut butter mint shakes. For a while, I work at the fast food joint across the street. I am not lying when I say I saw my manager take fries from one of the trash barrels by the picnic tables, rinse them off, and throw them back in the fryer. I cannot make this shit up. Melanie is thrown from the back of a motorcycle and dies. At the funeral, I don't know how to feel because she has been mean to Marcy and me, but now she is dead, and Marcy is crying hard enough for both of us, so I am embarrassed. I didn't know about open caskets, but there she is, Melanie, an awful orange color, kind of Oompa Loompa. I never want to see another dead body again. We all have problems, but father is no Bluto. He shakes my hand when I put it out for money and keeps leftover vanilla extra malts in the door of the freezer. He keeps his glass eye in a mason jar on the bathroom counter when he sleeps, which Marcy thinks is gross, but is amazing. He uses a tiny suction cup to put the eye in and take it out. Bluto may have broken my boyfriend's arm, but father would never do something like that, even if he and mother barely touch. I bring home a goldfish in a plastic bag that my boyfriend won, flinging frogs at the carnival in the mall parking lot. My boyfriend and I don't come right home, and by the time we do, the goldfish's fins are barely waving. We sit the bag in the middle of the table and stare, my boyfriend, father, and me. The problem is, my boyfriend stops, distraught. Without a sound, father goes to the kitchen, opens a drawer, and pulls out a straw. He unties the bag, sticks the straw in the water, and blows. The goldfish's fins start wiggling. Bluto wouldn't save a spider, let alone a goldfish. He named the German shepherd Himmler. Brandy Hillman is the author of the novel Burn Fortune and two books of poetry, Hard Reds and Bobcat Country, from Shearsman Books. She holds a PhD in English, creative writing from the University of Denver, and an MFA in poetry from Columbia College Chicago. With her husband and daughter, she lives in the suburbs of Denver, where she thinks about the Midwest and misses drinking Yellow Dine Number no. 5. We'll have a link to where you can buy Burn Fortune in the show description. And as it turns out, Burn Fortune isn't the only thing said in the 90s on the show today. Christopher Rosales' book, Word is Bone, also takes place in the early 90s, this time in Los Angeles. And here's an excerpt from that. I don't think Junie came back just to bury his pops to win that little girl or even to kill that man. I think he came back for this, to get people talking about him again. Hell, man, I think he'd been losing momentum. 
It was 1999. He'd been my best friend since we was kids, but I hadn't seen him in as long as the rest of them. Ten years, maybe. June, a musician, thought life wasn't worth living if it weren't worth singing a song or telling a story about. He wasn't dramatic in the way he moved his hands or in the way he moved his face, neither. He was dramatic in his choices of where to be and when to be there, and who to be there with. So I wouldn't call it a shock to see him walking out of starlight liquor with a bottle of whiskey in his hand, all casual. More like a phenomenon you know to watch out for, like an eclipse. If anything, it was a shock that he hadn't already taken the big step and claimed Kitty. What really shocked me wasn't that it was still summer and Junie was particular about only drinking light liquors until Labor Day, even though he was carrying whiskey, but that he looked like he had on a costume. Now to get what I'm saying, you have to have seen him before he took off, dressed just like me. People sometimes said we was brothers from another mother. I'm a lot darker than he is, because we even traded clothes. So like that day, for one, I was driving the roach coach, but I never put on my uniform till I'm working. So I had on some fat lace Nike Cortez, some Ben Davis jeans, and the jacket to match. I have my C hat. It's got a C on it for Cincinnati, but everybody knows I represent Clearwater. I couldn't pull over because I was on my way to pick up a body, and besides, like I said, it was hard to believe that was Junie. He had on tight jeans and cowboy boots, had on a white t-shirt and a red and black lumberjack. And mostly, what was different was the set of his jaw. He looked hard, man. Like homies look right after they've been let out the pen. Like the next man they meet could be the one to do them in. He still had the red facial hair. Girls around town used to call him Junebug. But now he looked intense. Dude looked like his face was on fire. He had a mustache like one of those cowboy ones with a fat soul patch beneath his bottom lip. He must have saw me staring. I nearly rear-ended the cutlass stop to turn left. But Junie stared right through me like I wasn't there as he crossed in front of traffic and went on down to the building. The one where we all used to live together. The one where I still live. Like I said, I was on my way to pick up a body. I'm somewhat of an entrepreneur, see? And my latest business has been the most successful by far. For this, I had a roach coach I operated out front of Progress Park, selling Twizzlers to the teenagers at the ball games in the evenings, selling burritos to construction workers busy bitching by dawn. Then the city shut me down because I was taking sales from the snack shack. I'd seen the bitch chewing her stale stock of big league, leaning against her lukewarm vat of corn dog batter, giving me the eye. She'd begun rolling her cage down in the eighth, then the seventh, finally the sixth, before I got canned. Anyway, how I got into this business is I got an old high school buddy that's a cop, and he knows I have this old tank, this van I used to use as the roach coach, and he tells me about the city contracting transporters. On this particular day, he tells me about the gig. He's chilling at the park to police the yearly football game between the boys and dog patch and the Eastsiders, because you know them gangbangers sometimes enjoy the violence of football more than the sport. There's a bunch of bald heads running around on the grass and all their girls and buddies are gathered around the field shouting. There's more than one big gray boombox on more than one side of the field, blasting more than one rap song or oldie but goodie. My friend's got his shiny cop sunglasses on and he tilts them down his nose. 
Transporters? I asked. What do I gotta transport? He's all dead dudes. And he puts his glasses back with a finger and crosses his arms, smiling. What do you think? Cool, right? His radio is chirping off and I don't have time to tell him what I think about it, which is that it gives me the creeps. He had to roll out right then, so technically, I didn't say no thanks. It didn't take long for the bills to hit the mailbox. A few weeks later, and there I was, on my way to pick up another dead body and driving right past my old best friend. I stopped down the block from the city morgue, put my uniform on in the coach, and ran the shaver over my face in the rearview mirror. Then I parked where I was supposed to, around back by the utility door, and headed on inside. Hey Mary, I told Mary, the girl who works the desk. She said hold on to someone on the phone and set it down. She smiled and came around the desk to take my paperwork. Your new uniform looks good. She's pretty cute when she's sitting down, but boy beneath the waist it's like a different girl. Like God mixed up gave a ballerina the ass of a bailiff. My friend on the phone says she's hoping you'll call me again. People hope that about my clients, too. Wouldn't it ruin the surprise to know? I checked the slot for the clipboard that wasn't there. Let me guess, you aren't ready yet? Wouldn't want to keep him waiting, she said, meaning, why the hell do you keep me waiting when you're the type to worry so much about a dead dude? But she laughed and took the phone up again and went back to talking on it, which is her favorite hobby. Ahem, I said, all butler-like. Oh, right. She got back up and came back around the desk, which took her a while. She handed me the clipboard, Mr. Walker. Mr. Walker, I thought, as in Junie? But I'd seen him just that day. I shook the dark thoughts loose of my head. Before I was through the door, she was back on the phone. She didn't seem even to talk that much in person, but the one time I talked to her on the phone, I eventually had to pretend my battery died to get some sleep. It didn't occur to me until I was headed down the dark hallway to the cooler that Mr. Walker could be Junie's pops. The morgue had a wall of what looks like refrigerator doors, only they're square and got locks on them. I walked down the line scanning for 11A, Turn the combination. The cold hits you in the face and makes your eyes all tight, every time. I don't know why, but I always think of death as being warm, and so I don't really like that part of the job. When your eyes reheat and throb the beat of your heart, you can see the zipper running straight down the bag into the dark and the shape of the body in there. I raised my hand to the cold zipper and started to tug. It was down about halfway past the bridge of the nose when I thought Junie might not have liked me doing that. He was always territorial. I wheeled the dude out and said see you to Mary who took the phone from her ear long enough to say, I screen my phone calls, you know. If you call, make sure and dial star 82 so I know to answer. I loaded Junie's pops into the back of the roach coach and said, I'll be with you in a second, sir, and shut the double doors on him. I like to take the uniform off whenever I can, so I stepped out of it. It's like a jumpsuit or a mechanic's outfit. I wasn't told what to wear, so I took it on myself. Professionality is key as an entrepreneur. To have a logo made up and a uniform put together. 
The roach coach had huge windows in the sides to pass food through, so I had those painted black and had the logo painted there. Sharon's Ferry Transportation Services. I had got it embroidered on the chest of the jumpsuit, too. I had found the Sharon's Ferry part in the encyclopedia at the library. The transportation services part, I came up with myself. So I was taking the dude to the mortuary, but as usual, I couldn't stand the drive. You can only watch the same streets for so long. The old houses in the sands, the chicken shacks hidden beneath blue tarps in the barrio, the cluckers at the payphones by the giant donut-topped shop in Compton. And the drive was quiet with the windows up, but awkward quiet because I still felt like someone's with me. So I said, how's Mrs. Walker been? Oh, right. I guess her name's not Mrs. Walker no more, but maybe you all kept in touch? Tuning the radio to the oldie station, I said, You like oldies, right? Me too. What am I thinking? June probably got his taste from you. Art LeBeau's show is still the bomb. That DJ must be what, like, a hundred? I ever tell you my mama named me Brenton after Brenton Woods? Yep. She said my pops would always sing that song Oogum Boogum to her. You know that one? High heel boots, hip hugger suits. Man, the way you all used to dress was a trip. It didn't take long to get to the mortuary, and when I did, I pulled around back in the alley. It always smells like the pier back there, because there's this Mariscos restaurant on the other side of the alley, and their dumpster's always full and open and buzzing with flies. I made the mistake of looking in there one time. There was a pile of shrimp up to the top, maggots squirming in it, like they thought the shrimps was their parents. I wheeled Junie's pops to the back door and pushed the buzzer. Nothing happened, and after a long time, I pushed the buzzer again. Finally, the door opened. What's going on? I asked Sam. I wish I could say it's dead in here. Sam's an interesting guy. He takes on a real dry attitude, which makes sense, his line of work. But he's huge, real huge. Like has to stoop under doorways and walk sideways through them too. And instead of just seeming respectful and serious and all, he comes off a little like Frankenstein. But we've got a situation. The family of the deceased was told the deceased would be here by two. He kind of sighed everything, he said, and after, nodded slowly with his lips tight, the way you do to console someone. But he especially sighed when using his politically correct terms around my ears. Family of the deceased. Sounded to me like a bunch of zombies, and I always told him so. Not this time, though. He was bugging out. The family of the deceased had been haunting his workplace for over an hour. I called the morgue many, many times, Brenton, and the line was busy. You know Mary, man, she's always chatting it up. Help me get him inside. We hadn't gotten far down the hall when I realized I wasn't wearing my uniform. Fuck. Pardon? Sam pursed his lips to keep from sighing. I looked down at my jeans and t-shirt and the yellowed glow of those fancy lamps on the walls. My... That's when the family of the deceased surrounded us. It was two women and a man and all of them were about the same place on the middle-aged ladder that looks the same from 45 to 60. This is unbelievable, the man kept saying. And each time one of the women would try to talk, he'd say, Let me handle this, Norma. Or let me handle this, Kate. And then just say again, Unbelievable. I could hear their kids playing somewhere in the lobby, laughing. 
which sounded real creepy in that cold and dark, quiet building. I took my proper position behind Sam, who was saying, This area is for workers only, folks, with that same sad nod at the end. I'm very, very sorry. The one called Norma finally spat out before the man could shut her up that they'd flown out here from Arizona because their nephew had hijacked their brother-in-law's body. I'll be damned, Kate said, a hand on a belly the size of a basketball and stuffed into high-waisted jean shorts, if his ex-wife is going to get to run this cat and pony show. Horse, the man told her. I don't believe it. The one named Norma thumbed the strap of her halter top back up her freckled shoulder. Now you two know Maggie had nothing to do with this. It's that crazy son of theirs, July. June, the man said. Junie. I didn't want to believe what I was hearing. I'd never met Junie's pops before. He'd left Junie and his moms way back when we were still kids. But Junie liked to talk about him like he still saw him all the time. He always told stories about his pops. Good stories. Only thing was, the stories didn't always add up. And here he was on the gurney. I wondered if, knowing Junie, he was going to force his pops to add up. Can you believe that son of a bitch? The man passed his eyes up and down my clothes, and I was already shaking my head, wishing more than anything that I hadn't forgotten that uniform folded on the passenger seat of the ferry. The man was wearing a lime green polo shirt and was in a constant fight to keep it tucked, and his pleated khaki shorts showed too much pasty leg for any man, wearing or seeing. He punched one hand into a pocket and pointed a finger of the other at me. And another thing. What kind of place hires a... He looked at Sam, still wagging a finger at me, or meaning to, but veering off toward a lamp on the wall. A goddamn gangbanger. Carding I beloved dead. Deceased, I mean. Dearly departed. A gangster. Unbelievable. I'm sorry, sir, I said, but I ain't no gangbanger. And I never have been but I was too embarrassed to be pissed. My face was hot, my gut empty, my hands shaky, so I stuffed them in my baggy pockets and made fists. I tried to explain that I had a uniform somewhere, but he just kept shaking his head and finally stomped down the hall, punched one of those fancy yellow lamps on the wall as he went. Honey, Norma yelled and chased after him. You guys. Then Kate ran off too, still palming that belly like it might fall off. You could hear them yelling at the kids to come on. Sam and I stood there, awkward and quiet, staring at that crooked lamp on the wall, keeping Junie's dead pops company. All I wanted to do was to apologize to him about forgetting my uniform, but I couldn't talk to him in front of Sam. I sort of thought out the apology in my head. I promised I'd do a better job next time, not that it'd make a difference to him or his. I promised respect. I asked him was it okay if it never got back to his son Junie about me not wearing my uniform. And then I stopped because I realized I was thinking that he could hear my thoughts, assuming ghosts knew our promises and if we broke them. That whole idea was too heavy and then I wished even more that I could just go back to talking to him out loud, like all the other dead ones. In the end though, I was too embarrassed. And I was extra ashamed of not saying nothing. We just stood there, Sam and me, and Junie's pops on the gurney. Eventually, Sam broke the silence with a sigh. 
I'd better take him down to the workshop now. Sam came around to my side of the gurney, and I had to stand back against the wall to make him some room, but when he wheeled that man away, the hall felt empty, long, and dark. Well, so, that's what went down. That's how I knew it was true. June was back. Christopher David Rosales is from Paramount, California. Since 2007, he's taught literature and creative writing at CU Boulder, where he earned his MFA, and the University of Denver, where he earned his PhD. His first novel, Silence the Bird, Silence the Keeper, won in the McNamara Creative Arts Grant and the Center of the American West's Writing Award. His third novel, Word is Bone, a noir about Southern California in the 1990s, out now from Broken River Books, is a 2019 winner of the International Latino Book Award. Contact him at ChristopherRosales.com. And of course, we'll have links to all of that in the show notes. And that is it. This is it. You've come to the end of the episode. As I said up top, there's more to come. More from Denver Orbit and a documentary and a new podcast on the way. So until then, I am Josh Madison. I produce this here little program and I will see you soon. Okay, I see my brother. You know what we can do? What? Cruise with the rhythm. Huh? Shiny the leaders too. Yeah. Posing with the hearties. Huh? Harder than the hearties. Huh? Still Muhammad plays with the full deck of cards. Huh? The tribe stuff is present. Yeah. Established with the beat. Be roll around on wheels. Huh? Or utilize the free. Go and keep progressing. Huh? Eagles of the tribe. Try. If we have to swing it. Huh?